Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Welcome to the Fair Perspectives Podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Chloe Valdery. Chloe is a writer and entrepreneur whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Newsweek, USA Today, Tablet Magazine, The New York Post, and many other publications. She is also the founder of Theory of Enchantment, a startup which provides a compassionate version of anti-racism training. Chloe has also recently launched her own podcast entitled The Heart Speaks, which features guests like Scott Barry Kaufman and a roundtable discussion with FAIR advisors Coleman Hughes and Camille Foster, as well as American Shade host Brittany King. Today we discuss her podcast, art and working in multiple mediums, the theory of enchantment and how it differs from other anti-racism programs, how pop culture can be a tool for teaching people how to love, how obsession with identity in art can divide us. Beyonce, the Kardashians, the victimhood mentality, responding versus reacting, and whether we can transcend race. Ladies and gentlemen, Chloe Valdery. Okay. Chloe Valdery, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thank you for inviting me, Angel. I'm so excited. Yeah, so we actually just hung out a couple of days ago here in New York. And uh, I'm actually flying solo today. Uh, Melissa is unfortunately busy. She can't be with us. But I'm sure this will be an excellent, amazing conversation. I have you all to myself for the first time. I usually have to share attention uh, (laughs) with a bunch of other cool and interesting people. So let's see if I I rise to the challenge. (laughs) Let's do it. Yeah. So you, we actually have, we have many things in common, but one thing that we have in common is that we have both recently launched podcasts. You are now the, <laughs> yes. the, the host of the 7 billionth podcast. <laughs> and it, yes. <laughs> called, another uh, one. Like DJ exactly. Khaled, another one. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, it's called the heart speaks. And why don't you tell me a little bit about that? What, you know, why on earth would you add another podcast <laughs> to the podcasting world, right? It's a question I ask myself. So what about you? Yeah, that's a good question. I have to give a shout out to my producer, Dash Amila, who encouraged me to start a podcast. It wasn't necessarily the first thing that was top of mind that I wanted to do, the first project that I wanted to create. But I was already having conversations with people on a regular basis. And he was like, why don't you start a podcast? It's like basically something that's 
sitting in your hands. So you might as well, you know, create something that can be an official platform for the, a lot of the conversations that you're having. And apparently it's a philosophy podcast. <laughs> I say <laughs> apparently because we just got some, some uh, statistics that came out that said it was like, that ran the numbers and said it was like the number two in this country and the number 16 in this country. But in all of the countries, it was all in philosophy. So the podcast gods have spoken and it's a philosophy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Although, you know, yeah. at, uh, at the time of this recording, I believe that I've only been, well, there's one episode and then there's a bonus yeah. episode, right? So your first episode was with Scott Barry Kaufman, our mutual friend. Mm-hmm. And then you had a kind of round table with uh, fair advisors, Coleman Hughes <laughs> and Camille Foster, but also the lovely Brittany King. Uh, she's wonderful yes. as well. And I mean, I guess I can see it being a philosophy podcast in, in, in the way that mm-hmm. you're, you're discussing, you know, heavy topics and you're, uh, you're approaching it through, through that kind of philosophical lens, but there's a lot of psychology. I think you mentioned young every yeah. 10 minutes or so, <laughs> if not, <laughs> if not more. Yeah. So, so I'm always, I'm always coming in with the, but what would young say? <laughs> right. Yeah. Moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you hope to accomplish with it now that you've been nudged into this realm of podcasting? What's your goal? Right. I mean, conversation oh. is obviously the main thing, but what about the conversation? What about your, what about the heart speaks, which I think is a beautiful title, especially for you. Thank I think you. it's very fitting. Um, yeah. But what about the heart speaks? Do you think you hope to contribute to the general, mm. you know, discourse? I, I think that I would like for us as a society to maybe get away from hyper cerebralness you know, and I'm guilty of this. I'm, I can be super intellectual, super heady. And that I can use that as a defensive mechanism to not like drop into feelings and like be mm. with the feelings and, and, you know, just be with what is on an emotional level. I think that, uh, you know, both of us run in circles with a lot of academics and a lot of, you know, intelligent people. But I think part of that can come with, a bias against or a hesitancy against emotions and feelings and seeing feelings and emotions as bad, actually, which I think is a very unhealthy way of approaching the world. So if I can facilitate conversations that can encourage people to be more heartfelt along with the intelligence, but also be heartfelt, I think that's what I'm trying to accomplish ultimately. That's a good goal. I think, you know, you and I are also we're artists in multiple mediums, right? You make music as well. And I think, I know for me, I'm sure this is also true of you, but I know that for me, that helps me keep from being Spock, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) uh, It depends on the, Mm -hmm. it depends on the context that people know me in, but Mm -hmm. I've been accused of being a robot, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to approach a, a topic that's difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to approach it very dispassionately so that I can just think about the ideas and not let, you know, my personal kind of proclivities or, mm-hmm. or just emotional reactions get in the way. Sure. Uh, and we could talk about that actually, but, but the art, you know, yeah. what I always say is, look, I write poetry. I, I, I sing in a band. Like mm-hmm. I, I have to be connected to that. 
sort yeah. of stuff. Otherwise, the music <laughs> yeah. would be terrible, right? And you have to feel, right? Like it has to, you have to be propelled by this thing. So, you know, do you, do you feel that that aspect of your life helps you kind of keep centered mm. and not too far into the bookworm? Yeah, so I actually just academic interviewed someone thing? who I think is having a kind of moment my impression was that he's having a moment where he's he's trying to figure out how to drop into feelings. And I told him that he should go play a musical instrument. Mm. <laughs> and he actually plays guitar. And I was like, go just pick up the pick up the guitar, you know. And I play guitar as well. I picked up the guitar yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. And I actually just I'm a very empathic person. So when I saw that he was suffering, I kind of felt felt it I felt the suffering within myself and then I felt the need to pick up the guitar so I actually just picked up the guitar again this weekend and it has been a while since I've dedicated playing time and so it was really nice I like re-downloaded musician and started relearning some chords and stuff like that and I want to try to do that more often this year and last year I I wasn't able to produce music as much as I have in previous years just because there's such a lack of time, you know? And as a result of that, I think it's, it's something that you have to dedicate yourself to, you know, it's something that you have to actually allocate time towards or else because we live in a society that values headiness on some level and that values intellect on some level, um, you have to just be deliberate about the amount of time that you dedicate to the arts, you know, otherwise you can lose yourself in intellectualism mm. as I do often. Yeah, definitely. I, I go mm. through phases. That's what happens with me is, yeah. you know, especially during COVID, you know, I'm stuck at home. I'm in an apartment. I share with my wife and, you know, mm. I feel <laughs> obnoxious if I were to just kind of fill the yeah. entire apartment with music or, you know, and she, she would, the first thing she would say is that's crazy. You know, I love it when you play, but I still feel the thing. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm annoying. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, like you feel, are you saying that you feel judged? Cause like, I feel judged, even though I might be judging myself really. Like it yeah. might just be a projection. Like no yeah. one's actually judging me for being right. musical. Like I like to sing around the house and, but then sometimes when I sing around the house, I'm like, Oh, is this, is this okay? Like, yeah. am I disturbing anyone? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is you know? that. And it's, it's the thing no. of, you don't want to be that guy. You know, mm -hmm. my wife says all the time, like she said, she says, if I could sing, I would sing everything. Like I would, I would never speak again. I would just sing, you yeah. know? And, but, but I tell her like, you don't know That's what you're talking beautiful. about. The, but <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about because the minute you, the minute you realize, like the minute you are that and you think about doing that, you're like, oh my God, I'm just pissing off everyone around me. Right. And like, you know, gloating about my ability or whatever it is, you know, however, however small that capacity is, it doesn't matter. It's just like, oh God, turn it off. Stop. But where do you think those thoughts come from though? Well, for me, I think, you know, I've always tried to avoid that lead singer type oh. image, right? Because- okay. You don't want to be the, the center of attention. You don't want to be, or, or, you know, everyone assumes that that's what you want. And I definitely okay. don't want that. It's just kind of what I fell into, right? So I was mm. the front man of a band and having to put that James Brown energy out, right? Because I've got oh, this that's big a lot of band. Yeah, yeah, like I've got, you know, <laughs> I was in this funk band and, it, you know, we literally had a horn section and it was a big, loud band. 
And cool. I can't be, you know, quiet singer songwriter guy, right? I have yeah. to be big bravado guy. And that takes a lot of energy for me. And, and people get the impression that that's just how I am, but it actually takes me a while to kind of phase into that and phase mm-hmm. out of it. So like mm-hmm. immediately before a gig and immediately after a gig, I need to be by myself and like decompress mm. to get yeah. back into this, you know? Yeah. Um, so I've had conversations with people immediately after a show that I don't remember because they're talking to somebody else. It really oh, feels wow. like that, you know? And they're like, you don't remember? We talked about this thing. I'm like, I'm sorry. You caught me right after a show. I have no idea what, yeah. you, what you were saying. I was somewhere else. Um, yeah. Wow. But it's just this thing of you don't want to be overbearing and yeah, obnoxious. You don't want to be this guy like, oh, look at me. Right. And I, mm. I think that that starts to spill over where even when you're at home and you're like, oh my God, there's somebody through the wall and maybe they can hear <laughs> me and maybe I'm ruining their day. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's know? kind of ironic because, you know, I have those same thoughts, but I mean, obviously it requires balance, but it's a kind of egotistical thought, right. For me to think that the world revolves around me so much that when I'm singing, I could be bothering someone. And you know, it is true. I could be bothering (laughs) someone. Right. But still there's a tinge of, there's a tinge of egocentrism in there. That's kind of confusing. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Like why would you care? Why, why would this rise (laughs) above the level of, you know, New York traffic or (laughs) someone, someone on their phone outside? Like why would it be more important? I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. Yeah. Maybe I should just do it. I mean, I'll, I'll, when my <laughs> wife isn't home, I'll take a shower and I'll sing in the shower and I'll feel free enough to like, yeah, you know, actually be loud. Yeah. Cause I feel like it's so funny because when I'm in the shower, that's the one place where I don't care. I will say like, I just, yeah. because especially it's the acoustics, you know, there's right. a great reverb. Yeah. It was like, it was like designed for us to sing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's you know? a, it's, it's a vocal booth. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because singing is so, especially singing, you're so vulnerable. You feel naked. <laughs> so yeah. In the shower, in the shower. So you're like mine naked. as well. You're like already yeah. there. You know? <laughs> right. And for me, I, I, in the shower, I try to sing stuff that's really difficult for me. So I'll try Ooh, to okay. do like, I'll try to do like the queen and that kind of stuff that's like way, you know, just super tough. Yeah. And I have a little bit of, of somehow the vulnerability of, of being alone in the shower and naked. It lets me try it. But yeah, if my wife is like mm-hmm. on the couch, she's literally 15 feet away from the shower. So okay. then I don't do it. You know what I mean? Then I'm like, Shout out to know. New York apartment complexes also. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once I have a house, I'll like soundproof the basement or something and I'll just do whatever I want. But. Yeah. Up until then, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of find the space, but also, yeah, I mean, getting back to the thing during COVID, we were in the apartment and, you know, the band I was in or the band I'm in now, we, we couldn't rehearse because we were like, you know, we need to bubble up. So we didn't, we didn't meet for a year and a half. Right. And I'm just, I'm just on the couch and I feel that thing about I'm not going to break out the guitar and, you know, make it yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. impossible for you not to hear me. Uh, yeah. So I got into a different space and I got into writing much more. Mm. And that mm. that phase was happening, right? And now it's kind of, I'm phasing a little bit in between where now we're playing music again. So I get to go do that and get that mm. energy out. And then when I'm home, I feel a little bit more like I can sit at the computer and do things. Mm. Um, but do you feel that? Do you feel phases? 
in your kind of creative output? I actually think my subconscious reason for creating the Heart Speaks podcast was so that I could have all of these aspects of my life converge onto Mm. each other so that I wouldn't feel pressured, even if it was just me creating pressure for myself, I wouldn't feel pressure to show up as the expected thing that other people are expecting like as the intellectual, as opposed to the singer or as opposed to Mm. the DJ or the music producer, I would rather cultivate a presence that is informed by all these elements of myself so that I feel comfortable to just burst out in song in the middle of a conversation about Descartes. Right. Like, so (laughs) I think that like, that's, that's where I'm trying to get to, but I did have the opportunity to go to these music brunches last year where my friend Tobias and his girlfriend Annika would like throw these brunches at their house and um, they would just invite a bunch of people over to jam for like hours. They And they had all these instruments, they had piano, drums, you know, microphones, and we would just come together and jam for four hours. And like, that was my musical outlet in lieu of not playing guitar. but yeah, I don't I don't think we were meant to have these sort of like siloed aspects of ourselves. You know, I think they're supposed to inform each other. And that's a kind of musical existence, right? To have different elements of yourself inform each other and then create a kind of harmonious balance between all of these things. Yeah. There's also a tension, I think. Mm. that I notice because I dip into so many different areas. Mm. So I went to, I went to school for writing and I was getting my master's in, in creative writing. And the vast majority of those people that I was in school with, they're mm. writers. And like, mm. all they do is books and all they do is write. And that's yeah. their whole universe. Mm. And so that's where the imposter syndrome kicked in where I'm like, Oh, I'm just kind of like a tourist. You know what I mean? Like I, I, oh, yeah. I write. But I'm not like these guys where it's their end all be all, you know, and a lot of my friends who are writers, that's it for them. You know, they like Mm -hmm. music, but they don't play music. They don't do that. They're just totally steeped into this thing. But I never liked that. I never liked the boundaries between those things. And people ask me all the time, you know, because I do these different things, what's the difference in the process, right? What's the difference between, you know, how you engage in photography and how you do music or how you do, how you write an essay. And for me, it's mm-hmm. exactly the same. The process is yeah. all the same. It's, it's all storytelling. It's all craft. It's all mm. kind of working with these fundamental things. It just kind of manifests itself differently. But, mm. but we have this kind of pull where people want you to be just the thing. You know, they want yeah. you to just be the writer. They want you to just be the musician. They want you to just be one thing. And they kind of scoff at you when like, you know, actors, when actors try to put an album out, there's always a kind oh, of yeah. side eye about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Weren't you just talking about what's his name on the, when we were out at dinner a few days yeah. ago? You mentioned uh, Robert Downey Jr. Which I had I had no idea he he yeah. made music. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> he's like a list. very he's actually like a beautiful pianist, mm. and um, you can see him. I think there's an episode of Ally McBeal where he's playing piano. And Very there's cool. some video. Yeah, there's some video on YouTube of Sting had like a birthday party show and mm. and uh, Robert Downey Jr. came out and sang a song and it's actually like great. And his album yeah. is a little weird. He has this weird kind of singing that he's doing in it. 
But uh, yeah, like I spent a long time kind of fascinated by people who are doing two things at once. Yeah. So that's how I found out about him. And, you know, Jared mm. Leto has a band. Mm, um, right, right. It's yeah. pretty big. And yeah. So I'm, I'm fascinated by people who are trying to do these two things because yeah. for such a long time, even my idea was you can't do that. You have to pick a lane. Mm. I think for me, I, I grew up in an artistic environment. Like at first I wanted to be a screenwriter and a filmmaker. So I was, there was this phase in my life where I was just writing these really bad scripts um, <laughs> to, to, to try to learn the art of screenwriting, but I was obsessed with it. I would like crank out 120 pages, like in a week, wow. you know, that's how you, but that's, that's, like a hint that it was bad because that's <laughs> that's way <laughs> too fast but then i got into then i was interested in politics right and then i found my way back to story and fiction and then i got into guitar i mean there was a period where i didn't discover guitar or an interest in guitar until i moved to new york so was, we're talking about the past six years and there was a moment in my life where I literally deleted Netflix because I wanted to spend the hours that I was spending watching Netflix, practicing and learning guitar. Wow. And so I've, I feel like I've always been uh, surrounded by different artistic mediums, but what impresses me about these people that you're mentioning is time management. Like how are they able to find the time to do right. all of these things? And how can I hack into their lives and figure out how to do that myself? Like, yeah. that's what I want to know, you know. Yeah. That's the, tr that's really tricky. You know, I, yeah. I kind of, I broke it. I had a similar kind of thing as you mm. and I got really good advice when I was pretty young, like mm. maybe early middle school uh, or in the middle of middle school, probably like eighth grade or something where someone said anything that you have an artistic inkling towards, you should just pursue it as much as you can right mm. now, because yeah. all you're doing is going to school. And you have nothing else to do. So yeah. just fill all that time with developing these things. And that's why I got into photography. Mm. And, you know, I, I flirted with the idea of screenwriting and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, and I kind of just set this schedule up for myself where I thought, all right, well, right now the main thing is the band because mm -hmm. that's a young man's game, right? Like I have until mm -hmm. 25 to make that work because after <laughs> 25, nobody cares what you have to sing about, which is silly. Yeah. But, but. But that was the thing. And then I was like, you know, if I succeed at that, then I will have a certain amount of clout and people will want to read what I have to write. Mm. And so then I'll become a writer. And then once I, once I've got those things down, then I'll have a certain kind of gravitas to myself and a certain amount of experience that I can actually get into directing film and stuff like that. Mm. Right. So I just kind of had it planned. You were, that you were really like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, I, I can, you know, like Ridley Scott is still doing movies and he's like, I don't know how old he is, but he's old. Yeah. <laughs> and so I <laughs> yeah. was like, okay, so I can direct movies until like I die, but I can't yeah. necessarily, <laughs> I can't necessarily be like in a band until I die. Right? Yeah. Like that'll be, that'll be harder to kind of deal yeah. with. Right. Your, your body just starts to, especially for me as a singer, your body just mm. starts to fight you with certain mm. things. It's, it's so, so I had this whole schedule, which completely just got obliterated. Right. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I'm still in a band now. I'm 36. I'm yeah. still trying to make that happen. You know, I'm a writer now, like all that stuff. If I had the bandwidth to try to make films, I probably would, but I don't. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's that thing, you know? Yeah. But this is funny because all this stuff really ties into the, the, the theory of enchantment. 
right? Mm, in my yeah. view. And it's it's interesting because you, you mentioned people seeing you as this kind of intellectual mm-hmm. and not really getting the the feeling part. But the feeling part is so much of what I know about you and how I yeah. receive you in, in all this way because, you know, the theory of enchantment is so deeply ingrained in, you know, the art that we love and yeah. using that in that way. But I heard you, I heard you kind of give your, your one sentence kind of elevator pitch for a theory of enchantment the other night when we were hanging out, someone asked you what it was. Oh, and you what was said, it? I don't remember. <laughs> you said, you know, so someone said, what, so what is, what does your startup do? And oh. you said, you said, we teach people how to love. Yeah. And I thought that was so beautiful. And I just would love it if you would expand upon that. Yeah, it was so funny because they thought I meant, they immediately assumed I meant romantic love. (laughs) They sort of of went into that and I was like, no, not quite. Um, So yeah, so yeah, Theory of Enchantment, what do we do? Theory of Enchantment is a startup, um, you know, and we are basically giving people an anti-racism practice. And we built a practice that is rooted in this understanding of uh, teaching people how to love, which is a very difficult practice, a nearly impossible task, actually, um, just because of our nature as human beings. Um, and it's, it's a task that takes a lifetime. So I will not, you know, arrive at accomplishing fully the task until the fullness of my life um, is complete. But this is essentially what we do. And the reason why we take that approach is because racism is fundamentally a kind of us versus them way of thinking. And and, an us versus them way of thinking usually emerges in a single individual or in a group of people, a community, when there's some kind of scarcity, you know, when you're feeling like, you have a loss of identity, which we all encounter as human beings during the course of our lives. When we feel that we have, um, that we're not loved, that we don't belong, when we're feeling insecure, these are not bad feelings, right? These are all parts of what it means to be human. But if we don't have the proper tools to deal with those feelings, then what we might end up doing is projecting. We might project those things that we feel those insecurities that we have that we dislike about ourselves onto other people. Um, And that creates a split, right? That creates this mechanism by which we split the world into all all those people who look like this are good. All those people who look like this are bad. And it's, it's really fundamentally a defensive mechanism. And so the practice of love is, is really teaching us how to unlearn casting those projections, how to recall those projections and how to be in right relationship with ourselves, with the complexity of ourselves, with the diversity that every single human being on earth has. So that when we see diversity in the other, we're not feeling threatened or fearful, but we can actually see it as a source of wonder and a source of enchantment, which is really where the name comes from. But it's also, it's also tied to a lot of kind of Disney uh, <laughs> pop culture and, you know, like I, I immediately get the, you know, the kind of the Disney logo when you say theory of enchantment, the enchantment yeah. part just becomes that kind of, you know, Tinkerbell doing the logo thing yeah. because that's so much of, of, I think, I think the brilliant part of, of your theory is that you tap into this thing that's already there. It's already mm-hmm. in people's hearts and souls and spirits 
it's mm-hmm. already in our, our popular culture and our lexicon. And it's, it's a common language that we all have, you know, mm-hmm. the, this love for pop culture, the, this love for these stories, which are, you know, a lot of it, if not all of it is Jungian archetypes and yeah. hero oh, journey, yeah. hero's journey type <laughs> stuff. Right. And so yeah. you, what you're doing is fascinating because you're tapping into this stuff and teasing out all these things that maybe people don't realize, like why you love The Lion King. Yeah. Right? There's something deeper there that, you know, as artists, I think we pick up on because we know that that's the thing that resonates, right? But maybe yeah. people who aren't artists aren't thinking about it that way. So mm. talk about that. Talk about how you came to this kind of realization and then how you harness this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. Disney's latest film is Encanto, right? Which is Enchantment. And yeah. it's a beautiful film. Oh, it's amazing. And it's, and it's very much aligned with the theory of enchantment in many ways. Yeah. But um, I came to really value pop culture and pop culture as a tool that could teach people how to love. Because when I was first doing the initial research for theory of enchantment, and I and I you know, ask myself, is it possible to teach people how to love? I then asked myself, well, maybe, or I told myself, well, maybe you can teach people how to love by figuring out what people are already in love with yeah. and figuring out, figuring out why, you know, <laughs> and then using that to continue to teach people how to love. So that's what naturally led me to pop culture. Like people already love Disney. People already love Nike. People already love Beyonce. Like why? Like what is it about these brands that command such loyalty and devotion from, you know, millions, if not billions of people that Mm. if I could discover the answer to that, I could learn something about the human condition and I could learn something about myself. So it really came out of this questing for, why we as a species gravitate towards some of the things that we gravitate towards and why we Mm. also experience a feeling of awe, you know, when we gravitate toward those things. It was that particular experience of awe and wonder um, and sort of like feeling, I think, you know, when I watch a Disney film, when I watch The Lion King, I just recently saw The Lion King on Broadway, uh, which is beautiful. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. It's beautiful. Um, I always... I always feel something sort of like larger than life or larger than myself. I feel a part of something that's larger than myself. And I think that we crave that as human beings. Um, That's where we get meaning from. And if, and if those experiences are what can cause us to be more open, right. And more curious about the other, then Disney becomes not simply a source of entertainment, Right. But something that could actually, dare I be overdramatic, help heal the world <laughs> of our, you know, polarization and, and um, of our prejudices and of our bigotries. So but it started with that question of what are people already in love with and what can that teach me? What can I learn from that? Yeah, I think we tap into that same sort of thing. I have this I have this just uncontrollable reaction whenever mm. a group of people is singing together mm. or even just chanting together, right? Like, you yeah. know, like even like the BLM protests, right? Like just yeah. hearing people say the same thing yeah. at the same time. And it's just 200 people. Like I have goosebumps yeah. now just, just describing this, you know? And yeah. like, there's this great video of 
I think it's in Italy and it's, it's gotta be thousands of people. Right. Mm. And it's, it's all thousands of guitarists and bass players and drummers and singers getting together. And they're all playing learn to fly by the Foo Fighters Mm. on this like football field or soccer field, I guess. Yeah. And you know, they shoot a video and the whole thing was, you know, this guy put it together and they really wanted the Foo Fighters to come play. And so they did this huge thing, but it wow. must've taken months and yeah. it's, it's so beautiful. And you know, it's, it's just a pop song. It's not like the greatest yeah. song in the world, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a cool song. I like it, but man, just hearing that, just seeing those aerial shots of, you know, there's gotta be like 200 drummers and yeah. there's gotta be thousands oh, wow. of singers, you know, like everyone is singing. And it's just this beautiful thing. Like I, I, I tear up every time. Yeah. I'm going to have to check out this video. (laughs) It's, it's so powerful. And there's another one. There's, there's, um, there's music festival Mm. where there's some kind of camera right behind the drum, the drum kit. And -hmm. you can see the crowd. Right. And like Mm -hmm. people are getting ready for another, another band to come on. I think Mm -hmm. it might be green day or something, but Mm. Bohemian Rhapsody starts playing over the loudspeakers mm. and the entire <laughs> festival crowd, thousands and thousands of people just start singing the song. And it's That's amazing, awesome. right? Like you just yeah. get these. So there's something so powerful about that unity, about that yeah. sense of, you know, a song that was written before you were born. Yeah. And it's connecting with you like a time travels, you know, or, or mm-hmm. just that, that, and that thing of people, people all loving the same thing and getting yeah. something out of it. You know, someone wrote a song, like someone just wrote a silly song, you know, in their room or whatever and recorded yeah. it. And now that person's gone, but that song is still here. Yeah. And we all still resonate with it. I feel like that's the core of the the theory mm. for, for, you know, I feel like that's what you're tapping into. And it's so powerful. Yeah. I, I think you can see the response. Like I've seen people who have mm. taken your course and who have, who've talked about it and just, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the uplift, it's such a different, yeah. it's such a different reaction and such a different mm. kind of state of being that they're in than yeah. the alternative, which we, we yeah. do have to talk about, right? Like how, how do you see, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> how do you see your, your program as being different from, and, you know, obviously you think it's better than, these alternatives, <laughs> right? Like, and yeah. I, I agree, but, and I, and I, I mean, I have my answer, but I would love to hear what you think. Yeah. Just to, just to know, I, I agree with you. There is a certain timelessness that we're trying to capture in the theory mm-hmm. of enchantment. One of the things I like to say is that if, if wisdom is timeless, then we should, we should be able to find it in both the past and in contemporary mm-hmm. culture. And not only that, the two should rhyme in a way the two should resonate with each other. So this is why we have in the course Kendrick Lamar next to Marcus Aurelius, right? Because there's a thread um, between the past and the present that we're trying to connect people to. Um, But to answer your question, I mean, listen, the truth is (laughs) I really, this is a hard question for me um, a, a little bit because I, I, you know, I could, I could give you all the sort of traditional reasons why I think that my program is better than some of the other anti-racism programs out there. Um, But 
I also really don't think about the other anti-racism programs out there a lot. And maybe that's a problem. Maybe I should spend more time thinking about them. But I, I think that many of the other anti-racism programs are susceptible to, and in fact, do perpetrate that kind of us versus them way of thinking. And not deliberately. And when I say not deliberately, I just mean that like, you know, we're humans. We don't really know what we're doing <laughs> half the time. And when we can really be super um, um, self-righteous and super zealous about justice and for good reason, you know, we, we can, when we're experiencing hardship and despair and loneliness and persecution and pain, um, if we don't have the proper tools to deal with those um, elements, then we can split the world <laughs> into black and white um, and continue to sort of uh, pursue the same ideas that we're actually trying to undermine. And so a lot of mm -hmm. the anti-racism programs that are out there inadvertently do that. So they, you know, separate people on the basis of race. They assume the lived experiences of people based upon their skin color. And it's very bad, but it's more tragic than it is, for me at least, it's more tragic than it is like evil. Right. Um, elements of it, I think are evil, but I think the more important piece is that it's actually deeply tragic. I agree. Yeah. And I think that for me, for me, the thing is that the core focus is different and it's mm. an understandable, it's an understandable difference, right? It makes sense mm -hmm. that the core focus of many of these other anti-racism programs would be division, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the problem to solve is division. Mm -hmm. But because that become, because that is the core, it becomes almost the solution. Right. Just inadvertently, right? But for you, the core is unity. For you, mm -hmm. the core was, these are all these things that everyone already loves. And let's tap mm -hmm. into that to solve these kind of peripheral problems of we're mm -hmm. miscommunicating, we're missing one another, we're not seeing one another. If we mm -hmm. all dig into that one thing, then, then maybe we can correct this. I feel like it's just we mm -hmm. have it backwards. Focusing so much on the division and almost then taking the division and using it as the solution is, mm -hmm. is so mm -hmm. much of why I think the tragedy occurs. You know, mm -hmm. would you, would you agree? Yeah. I think that for a lot of the other anti-racism programs, the creators didn't stop to ask themselves, well, what, where does this division come from? How does division manifest psychologically in the human psyche? Why do we divide mm -hmm. ourselves into these sort of boxes? Is there any existing, a uh, tool that or platform that can that can help us stop dividing ourselves um which i think the arts is the answer um but yeah there seems to be no kind of curiosity on that front mm. and no deeper questing into the human condition as such and so things are taken for granted essentially um mm. and the problem with taking things for granted is that if I take things for granted as a human being, I mean, I'm already susceptible to self-deception as a human being naturally. Right. But if I take things for granted, I'm especially susceptible to self-deception. I'm not questioning myself. I'm not, I'm not questioning the assumptions that I have or the assumptions that I've developed over time. And it's interesting because if one is more open 
and one is more curious, I think, about themselves then questioning one's own assumption no longer becomes a threat, right? It no longer becomes something that would undermine your identity in, in the existential sense of the word. And I think that's ultimately what we're getting at here. There was a great conversation that Thomas Chatterton Williams had with this woman, I forget her name. They're talking about race. I wish I, I wish I remembered her name, but shout out to whoever you are. Um, <laughs> they were talking about race and she was saying, you know, I don't know what I would do without race. And she's African American, oh. I believe. Was it Brianna Joy Gray? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And and that she was, was like, great. I don't know, I don't know what I would do. And I was like, yes, this is this is the heart of the issue. Like mm. it's, it's an existential crisis to simply, in my mind, to simply tell people to get rid of this thing that you've been defining yourself for so long. Right. And and defining your entire world and your entire ideology and your t- like the way you see things to tell people to simply give that up without giving them something to replace that, I think is actually somewhat foolish. But in general, you could you could distill that down to questioning one's own assumptions that one has held for such a long time. That can come with an existential um, identity crisis. And so if you don't give people the proper tools to deal with that, you are pushing people into, you know, a potentially nihilistic limbo, which is very, very mm. dangerous. So I don't want to underestimate the challenge of getting people to question things that they associate with their identity. It's actually very, very fraught, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we should take that seriously. So there's there's two things here, um, but I think the, the first thing I'll, I want to, delve into with you is still hanging on to the art part mm-hmm. is we see so many people reacting to art in this kind of backwards way, an opposite way to mm. the way that you kind of advocate for, which is the hyper-focus on identity and the hyper-focus on the divisions mm. between mm. the art, right? So like, you know, for example, Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar belong more to a certain group of people than right. to anybody else, right? And that yeah. that totally talk goes about ag- that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. So like yeah. <laughs> but like that goes against your entire thing of like, no, everyone resonates with this. Yeah. Right? Now we're 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 putting up fences, we're drawing lines and we're saying, no, 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 no. You don't yeah. resonate with this. I resonate with this because of these characteristics that I have that you don't, right? And then yeah. there's just the, the obsessed the obsessive kind of devotion to quotas about mm. you know identity identity quotas and things like that and all these all these things that kind of they start to cut cut this whole beautiful artistic landscape up and prevent mm. people from making that connection right and I, the way that i see it is that beautiful moment on this soccer field the soccer pitch where all these people are singing this song wouldn't be able to happen because mm-hmm. there are people who wouldn't be allowed to be there you know, by by dint of these this sort of divisive sort of thinking. What do you think about that? That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Angel. Well, um, <laughs> well, Melissa's not here, so I got to make sure that I'm like carrying the weight. Yeah, this yeah, is my yeah. first solo solo show. Yeah, so. no, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> doing a great job. Listen, I would say that it's complicated, right? It's complicated. So I'll give you a great example. We're going to dive right in. So take Beyonce's "Black Is King." I don't know if you've seen this. 
Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen that. Okay, so I I go so hard for this film. I think it's one of the most beautiful films Beyonce has ever created. I would say Beyonce has outdone herself. But for many, and understandably so, the title is problematic, right? Now, what is Blackest King about? Blackest King is a retelling of The Lion King, and but it's a telling of the African-American story. And not just the African-American in the sense of um, Americans, but also Africa and the African diaspora. Um, And it's this retelling of the story. So you you see there's this guy who plays Simba, there's this woman who plays Nala, there's a guy who plays Scar, and so on and so forth. And there are all of these interesting elements that make for an incredibly conservative story, actually, because it's about a guy who you know, um, grows up in a traditional family where family is really important and um, honoring the elders and honoring the ancestors is very important. Um, But then he sort of drifts off into um, a kind of hyper-consumerist mindset and loses his way and has to be reborn. um, And then go back home and rediscover his roots and become the true king, right? Um, And it is simultaneously a story of rebirth of a people who experienced slavery and and sort of in the process lost their way, but had the capacity to be reborn and um, become psychologically whole, essentially. It's a very Jungian uh, tale in that way. And there's part of me that's like, you know, this is beautiful. This is incredible. This is amazing. This is gorgeous. Everyone should see it regardless of their skin color, whatever. But then there's part of me that understands the sort of reflexive conservative response to say the title is problematic. You know, Beyonce is claiming that black people are superior, blah, 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 blah. Which I don't think that's what she's doing, by the way. I think yeah. I think it's far more complex than that. Mm-hmm. It's far more nuanced. And so how 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 is this related to your question? <laughs> when you're talking about <laughs> when you're talking about playing music, right? There's this idea that you want to achieve harmony, right? But to achieve like harmony requires diversity in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Harmony requires different instruments that are not all the same right and to make an analogy to extend that further i would say harmony requires cultures that are not all the same i would say in many ways this is the american project right e pluribus unum out of many one so it requires a kind of a celebration of difference and the attempt to celebrate difference coming together as one not getting rid of your difference but coming together as one So the question for me is, you know, how does art play a role in advancing that mission? How can it play a role in advancing that mission? But what are the things that stop us from accessing it, right? Because if you take a film like Blackest King, I could put myself in a conservative white person's shoes and and empathize with that position and see myself, you know, having a problem at the very least with the title. Right. But I would never want that to stop me from even 
daring to engage with the material, right? And and thinking that, oh, maybe there's something I can get out of this as a human being, right? And so right. the failure to, to empathize, to put yourself within someone else's shoes, within a totally different culture shoes, has a, a damaging effect on both sides, as it were, right? It, it has a damaging effect on the person who who, let's say in the Ibram Kendi-esque paradigm, who cannot see a white person as their brother or sister, right? In, in the true sense of the word, it stops yeah. them from being able to do that. And it also stops the white conservative or the white Republican from being able to engage with this piece of film because the title is threatening to my sense of identity. And so I could never like meet you halfway. Um, and this is, again, a tragedy. But I yeah. do think that art is complicated and art is supposed to be complicated and um, it's allowed to be complicated and we should relish that and, and, and bask in that without feeling threatened simply because we don't necessarily see ourselves in it on the surface, because I actually think anyone could watch. I, I truly believe that anyone could watch Black is King and still see themselves reflected um, in yeah. that piece. No, I fully agree. I said a lot I, there, so. <laughs> no, no, it's great. That's exactly, yeah, that's, yeah. We're, we're totally on the thing, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think, I think the the issue that I was trying to touch on is the fact that not only is this, you know, hypothetical conservative person um having trouble seeing themselves in it yeah. but they are actively being disincentivized from seeing themselves in it by mm. the people who do see themselves in it right they they yeah. have a they they think they have a claim to it that this person does not and they're right. saying no this doesn't belong to you you need to get out right when right. when when the the point of art and the beauty of it is no you don't need to get out in fact you're already here and you may not know it yet. And yeah. that's what this is supposed to show you, right? Yeah. So it's so it's it's a twofold problem. It's it's a difficulty identifying, but then there's there's a kind of people putting the fence up and saying, no, you don't get to identify with this. Right. Right. You and know? then the response is the response is, you're right. I don't get to identify with this, right? I like, I don't yeah. identify with this. I hate this, right? And then there's this reciprocal exactly. mimetic, you know, um, yeah. behavior all the way down, mm -hmm. which, which makes it more likely for polarization and hatred right. and bigotry to occur. Yeah, it's a disenchantment, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. It's, and it's so, it is tragic, as you said, because... Yeah. That is such a beautiful avenue. I mean, yeah. I, I'm thinking of Daryl Davis, who we had on the show. He's mm. an advisor. I'm sure you know who he is. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. And you we know, teach we, him in theory of enchantment. Yeah. I mean, how could you not? Yeah. Right. He's like a superhero. But yeah. But you know, he's he's talking about how he he ends up talking to this this KKK member, someone who, by all you know reasoning, would never even speak to him. But the reason yeah. that he was approached, the reason Daryl was approached by this person is because Daryl had just played music and was just playing, you know, rock and roll music, you know, uh, Little Richard and stuff like that. And this yeah. person, this person came up and said, wow, you play just like Jerry Lee Lewis. I've never heard a black man play like that before. 
that yeah. was the bridge. The bridge was this, yeah. you know, Daryl's playing connected with this guy. He couldn't help it. He felt it in his bones. Yeah. You know, yeah. the music was too, it was too powerful. He could, he had yeah. to overcome all that bigotry to just walk yeah. over to him and say, I've never heard a black man play like that before. And then of yeah. course, you know, Daryl says, well, you know, who do you think taught Jerry Lee Lewis how to play that right. stuff? Right. It's people like little Richard. Right. So yeah. it all ends up connected. And it's funny that you mentioned black is King being a retelling of the lion King because the lion King mm-hmm. is a retelling of Hamlet. Right. Right. And yeah. so it, it <laughs> always goes back. Right. And it's like, look, yeah. we don't own any of this. Like we yeah. either, we all own all of it or none of or us none own of us. any of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, I think that's such a beautiful, beautiful point to make and to highlight. You know, it's like we're either we're all already here or mm-hmm. none of us are there yet. And I think it's yeah. clear which one is actually true, you know? Yeah. Um, but getting to that, let me let me ask you about okay. the Kardashians. Because <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because we had a little bit of a tiff about this, right? Like I made the usual jokes. Um, but you Oh have yes, this very I remember strong, this. Yes. Yeah. So you have this very strong feeling about, you know, no, 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 no. I'm missing the point. Uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, what I see and what many people see is, you know, it's it's vapid, it's very, you know, superficial, <laughs> and it's very just consumerist and obsessed with superficiality and all that sort of stuff. The usual spiel that you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm not someone who watches the show. My wife watches it a little bit. But Mm -hmm. I never saw anything that I could get out of it. But Mm -hmm. but you came at me with this whole other thing. So give me give me the spiel. Let's fill fill in our our (laughs) listeners, our viewers on the spiel. Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I should admire. Well, it's not that you're wrong. Yeah, it's not that you're wrong, Angel. It's it's all of them, by the way. Mm -hmm. But it's so much more. It's so much more. Um, so I, what I had the impression that, you know, this is what the Kardashians were all about and this is sort of what they could be reduced to. And then my friend told me I should actually watch it. And she thought that I would get something out of it. And then I started watching it, I think in 2020. And I was like, oh my God, I love the Kardashians. Um, (laughs) and I think it was because I wasn't expecting the heavy emphasis on family. Um, that is just a thread, a huge thread throughout the entire show. The every almost every single episode that I've seen is about family and how can we stay together as a family and how can we maintain a deep, loving relationship as a family with all of the drama that comes with the territory of being a Kardashian, right? Of being yeah. in the limelight. Yeah. <laughs> of <laughs> of of dating guys who may or may not, you know have their ish together, uh, et cetera. Like throughout all of those ebbs and flows, the central or one of the central themes of the show that I found was family. And I was just not expecting that. And it's an incredibly traditional show in that sense. And that's what, that's what I really came to love about it. Mm. Yeah, I can. Okay. So I can see that. Um, yeah. but actually I didn't mean to do this, but I inadvertently trapped you, I think, because. Oh, goodness. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, because because that leads me to a criticism. Right. And and that is something (laughs) that is something that 
you know, people like even Jordan Peterson get, which mm-hmm. is that, okay, I can see how you're reading that into it, mm-hmm. but. I've heard this response, by the way, but continue. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like, okay, so I can see how you're reading that into it, but you seem to be prioritizing that over the parts of it that are harmful or toxic or problematic. Here's and the thing. Here's the thing. I have heard from people like, they're like little girls look up to the Kardashians and to the Jenner family for like, you know, aesthetics and makeup and that's harmful. And I'm like, it is not the Kardashians uh, duty to, to parent your children. Right. I didn't Mm -hmm. start watching the Kardashians until I was like 26 years old, you know? So, so I don't think I'm, reading into it per se i think that the show covers mature topics and Mm -hmm. it requires a certain maturity level to watch it like i wouldn't let my kids watch it right but like that doesn't i don't think that means that i'm reading in into it i think it means that parents need to do better jobs with choosing what to expose their kids to and i and i've heard this silly response which i cannot for the life of me fathom which is that oh well they're going to be exposed to it anyway so i might as well just what let them sit in front of the tv and watch it you know ad nauseum <laughs> which is the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard in my life it's like that's not how parenting wo- i mean that's not how my parents raised me <laughs> let me speak right. for myself right i don't think that's how parenting works if my parents didn't want me exposed to something to the best of their ability, they made sure I wasn't exposed to it, right? And eventually right. I might be exposed to it. But I do think there's a kind of reckless abandon <laughs> that people have when they talk about the Kardashians insofar as it impacts like young kids. And I just don't think that that's necessarily fair to the Kardashians. And again, I'm not saying that there's, of course, there's definitely vanity. There's definitely vapidness. Mm-hmm. There's definitely you know, many of the things that you talked about, but there's also this other virtuous stuff, right? Like to say nothing of the fact that Kim Kardashian strikes me as an incredibly moral person, especially given all the things that she's done with criminal justice reform and pursuing a law degree and, you know, all these things. So I, I think that most people who are dismissive of the Kardashians perhaps read into it all the things that you're saying without taking into account the other stuff that mm. is there that I think is good, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I can, <laughs> I, I can, I can go with you there. Okay. Um, and I think that, you know, and yeah, like I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here because I do sure, agree yeah. with you, but, yeah. <laughs> but this, this criticism actually translates or it can translate. I don't know if you've gotten this, but it can mm. translate into uh, theory and theory of enchantment as well, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is that oh, you know, you're you're teaching people how to love. You're focusing on the love part. You're not dealing yeah. with the problems. You're not dealing with uh, you know, our yeah. society yeah, yeah, today yeah. is is such and such a way, and yeah. you're just kind of giving this pie in the sky, you know. And I get mm. this all the time too for my own kind yeah. of approach. Yeah. But, you know, you're, it's, it's all, you know, hippy dippy. We're all singing Kumbaya. <laughs> Meanwhile, some people are being killed. Some people are being victimized, 
you know, mm-hmm. and you, you don't seem to be dealing with that. So how would you re- mm-hmm. react to that? You're just like, boom, boom, boom. You're segueing from the Kardashians to, you know, <laughs> to why are you telling people to turn the other cheek? No. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. I get that all the time. I yeah. get that all the time. Like, oh, you're just rolling over and letting people be, you know, you're just yeah. allowing white supremacy and blah, blah, blah. This is a difficult question because it's a question that, I mean, I think I could talk for hours about this question, like, mm-hmm. but I won't do that. Um, I would say that love is a very hard thing. Love is not a pie in the sky, hippy dippy, whatever that means thing. It's a very difficult practice. And again, like I said, a nearly impossible practice. And it's actually easier to just say to the other person that you have a problem with, or to say to the other group of people that whose skin color you despise or whatever, to say, you know, F you. It's, it's so much easier to do that, right? It's so much easier to let an emotion, let's say of anger, spring up in you. And instead of being conscious about how to channel that anger properly, to simply let it explode in a destructive and diabolical fashion. It's actually way easier to do that. And, and it's way easier in that sense to also destroy society. It's much harder to build something in a sustainable fashion. And it's much harder to love because loving requires a kind of not just psychological wholeness, but a practice that leads to psychological wholeness, which is hard you know if if i have a temper you know if i have a if i am easily driven to anger when someone cuts me off in traffic or when someone you know treats me in an inferior manner because of my skin color it's easier for me to simply treat that person in the same way they've treated me and what would society gain from that i'm not sure uh i don't think you would gain much One of the four elements that Dr. King said is necessary for a successful nonviolent campaign is self-purification, right? And he was talking about this practice of learning to not hate your enemy, (laughs) right? Um, And that requires just so much work on the self in order to do that. And that is way harder than all the things that we've spoken about thus far, it's, 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 it's way, it's way harder to, to say to yourself, Oh, maybe I harbor some of the same prejudices that my enemy harbors towards me. Maybe I actually harbor those same prejudices towards her for the same reasons, i.e. skin color, right? Oh, maybe I have to check myself and maybe I have to unlearn the things that, that have caused me to think in this way. Yes, I have been traumatized, but perhaps by this person or the society persecuting me, right? But then what is my responsibility in response to that trauma, right? Responsibility, you know, this this is a musical word. Responsibility is about response. And there's this whole call and response thing, right? That exists in many different cultures, including sort of the African-American Baptist tradition, which is a musical term. And the call and response sensibility is, I would say, the exact opposite of a victimhood slash patient centered mentality when you have a victimhood mentality the problem is not that you are saying that i have been a victim of this the problem is that is when you begin to identify exclusively or primarily as a victim 
and say to yourself, I have, I have no capacity to take responsibility for the situation that I'm in. And to take responsibility for the situation that you're in, especially when you have experienced some kind of persecution, is to unlearn the ways in which that persecution might actually turn you into a persecutor. And this is really what Dr. King was trying to get at when he talked about a lot of these things in his sermons, which we really haven't studied as a society at all, unfortunately. But like, what is my responsibility as a human being? How can I respond in a way to the situation so that I don't perpetuate the same injustices in reverse, right? That's a much harder question to ask than to say, I'm just going to react, right? Which is a, which is not from the same sort of like call and response sensibility, but it's an imitation, right? You're reacting, you're imitating what was done to you, which is easier and and instinctual. And um, so that's what I would say. I would say that the that the easier way out is to just descend into us versus them polarized ways of thinking. And, and what we are proposing is the harder thing to do. Ultimately. I agree. Yeah. It's definitely harder, but it's the more meaningful thing. I, I, I liken it to uh, fast food versus, you know, mm. having a healthy diet, right? Like yeah, people don't even realize that they feel awful. Because they're mm. so used to how they feel. Yeah. You know, yes, eating yes. everything, like eating their <laughs> junk food, they think, no, I feel fine. But then yeah. if they've switched their diet and suddenly they're having a really healthy and nutritious diet, after a few weeks, they'll find themselves feeling more energetic and maybe more yeah. kind of just, just generally happy. And they'll be like, wow, I didn't realize how awful I actually felt before yeah. because it was normal for me. But now I can see the difference. But the thing is getting people to eat their vegetables is really hard. So how do you, how do you, how are you going to get people to eat their their vegetables? I think, I think that the way that theory of enchantment becomes attractive to people is through uh, this idea that you will potentially encounter or experience a state of joy (laughs) if you go through the training. and. Joy is such, for me personally, joy is such a, like, like I want to be living in a state of joy at all times, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, when I meditate in the morning and I say a blessing at the end of my meditation, one of the things that I say is teach me to practice joy. Like I want to be joyful in in every situation, in every encounter, tragedy, hardship, you know, uh, happiness, whatever. Like I want to experience joy because if I can experience joy, then I'm going to be less likely to react to someone or something that's negative and more likely to respond right in that musical sense of the word in the same way that Daryl Davis responded, right? He could have imitated the KKK people, but he did not. He didn't react. He responded. And by doing so, he completely offered a different model for them to imitate. And that's the beauty of, of one of the beautiful things about being human is that as human beings, we imitate each other. Right. And, you know, Rene Girard has spoken about this and Luke Burgess has written about this. But like that can be a problem if we imitate, you know, just polarized behavior or us versus them behavior. But if we can imitate other people's joyousness if we can imitate other people's openness curiosity right um wonder 
then we can actually change the dynamic and we can actually scale joy, which I think is, would be a really cool thing. So that's what we're offering. If, that, if I could boil it down to one kind of existential orientation, it would be joy. So teaching people how to love and how to experience joy. Yeah. That's a good elevator pitch. Right? Like, who, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't I mean, want that? <laughs> I, I think that the your only problem would be skepticism that you can deliver, but I know you can sure, deliver. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, listen, there's no guarantee, right? right. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to, I'm going to try my best. Yeah, you know? and the attempt is better than no attempt at all. Right? Yeah, for sure, um, yeah. So speaking of unlearning, I really mm-hmm. wanted to ask you about this. Uh, you mentioned Thomas Chatterton Williams earlier, and I know that you've read the book Racecraft, which is something that I've been talking about have, a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I think you pushed me to read it, actually. I Yeah, I might have. I think yeah. I asked you like, hey, have you read this yet? You need to read this. Yeah. And then I saw that you were reading it and I was super excited. So yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts. What What do you, you know, what did you take away from the book? By the way, mm-hmm. listeners, viewers, this is um, Racecraft. The Soul of Inequality in American Life, I think, is the subtitle. Mm-hmm. And it's by Barbara mm-hmm. and Karen Fields. I highly recommend it. Um, I talk mm-hmm. about it all the time. I've talked about it on the podcast. But I would love to hear what you what you thought of it and how it's shaped your, your worldview. Mm. So I finished Racecraft over Thanksgiving week last year. And um, I thought it was very good. I thought it was um, really good in terms of, like, showing me the economic underpinnings of racism and how racism has been used by um, a lot of sort of like historically upper-class whites to keep poor whites from rebelling or from, you know, creating a, I don't know, a class sort of partnership with poor blacks, if you will. Um, So I really learned a lot about that, about the economic elements that have shaped and informed racism. And I also learned a great deal about how Jim Crow in particular was set up for that reason to, to basically satiate poor whites um, so that they wouldn't rise up and try to overthrow up people in the upper class who were sort of not giving them resources and things like that. Um, now, the ending was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember the ending. The ending was sort of like, Oh, it was also interesting because it kept calling it. There was a word, there was a phrase that it kept referring to race as. I actually have it. Hold on, let me grab it. I have it here. I don't know if you remember the term. It was like a term related to, but not quite religion. Uh, ideology. No. Is it ideology? I don't remember. It's been a bit see. since I read it. Now, because it 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 actually makes a distinction between. Between religion and the word that I'm trying to find, because it was a good term. Yeah, you know, I'm not it's a dense it. book. It's very dense. Yeah, it took me. It took heads, me up, heads up to your to your audience. It's very. <laughs> yeah, I've talked about it before. I, I had trouble reading it. It was it yeah. was hard for me to absorb. Um, definitely one of the great insights that that came out of this book was like racism came first and then race was invented right right? not the other way around which we get wrong all the time in our contemporary discussions about race and of course it's called racecraft because it compares racism to witchcraft right uh but yeah i can't find the time but anyway the ending was interesting 
because I felt like it was arguing that race should totally be done away with, essentially. And I'm not sure that I agree with that if there's nothing to replace it. And again, this goes back to my whole point earlier about Mm -hmm. um, people having identity crises. And I would have loved to see the Field Sisters explore that a little bit Um, because I, I think that they take the cost of getting rid of race for granted because mm. they didn't explore the cost of what an existential identity crisis would do to, um, yeah, I don't know, millions of people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I yeah. So. And I've, I've, I've gotten this in kind of having these conversations now, especially after the mm. book and there's a lot going on. And I think, you know, uh, Dr. Sheena Mason talks about this. We had her on the mm. we had her on the show a couple episodes ago, mm. and I think one of the major issues is that we have conflated so many things with race. We've conflated mm-hmm. community and culture, and ethnicity, and you know, history a shared history with mm-hmm. race. And we a lot of people see getting rid of race as getting rid of all those things. In mm-hmm. my view, I think I understand that because of the conflation. I understand because those things are kind of intertwined in the way that mm-hmm. we think and speak about it. But for me, it's actually liberating those things. It's actually expanding mm. those things and making them more powerful and more uh, fruitful because mm-hmm. they're not tied to this this very limiting and very oppressive kind of idea. So it's mm-hmm. actually it's it's hard to to see because. We're swimming in it. But Mm -hmm. if we were to extricate the concept of race from all of these things, it would actually open us up to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, recognizing how much we can connect with like the Harlem Renaissance, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Like that belongs to everyone. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's actually terrible that we feel it only belongs to a certain group of people. And even Mm -hmm. to that group of people, it's a limiting thing because if it belonged to everyone, its its importance would be not magnified, but actually identified. It would actually be recognized mm. for how monumental it really was because it becomes a human mm. thing, you know. And yes, of course, there's of course there's subgroups and there's you know cultures within cultures and all that sort of stuff. And none of that would go away, but just this mm. miasma that we're in, where we where we see the, these divisions as fundamental. That's yeah. the part that, that's what I got out of the book is, is just the recognition that racism came first mm-hmm. and that, that the act of racism actually creates these divisions and makes them feel real. That's the part that I think mm. is so powerful. And I wish we could find some, some way to communicate it more easily because that, there is that problem that you mentioned. It's interesting though, because one of the things that James Baldwin said in his conversation with Nikki Giovanni was that he was happy that the My Black is Beautiful movement had become a movement, but then that it he was excited to see it die <laughs> at some point yeah. or no longer be necessary. But that what that strikes me or how that strikes me is is linear meaning i don't i'm not sure that you can actually get to this is interesting i'm not sure that you can actually get to the end of race without 
there's part of me that thinks that the current moment that we're living in right now is, is actually an incredible opportunity because what it suggests is that people are searching for psychological wholeness and going about it in all kinds of problematic ways. But the search itself is right. promising in and of itself. And so there is this question of like, you cannot transcend race without going through race. It's a question. It's a hypothetical. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but it seems to yeah. me that that was what James Baldwin was sort of getting at. And I, and I'm not sure, like, I would be curious what someone like Thomas would say to that <laughs> um, mm -hmm. hypothetical, but like, I've always, I've always thought about that ever since I saw that conversation between the two of them. But I'm wondering what you think of that. Yeah, I think, I feel like we've been trying to go through it. And I think mm -hmm. that we've been kind of getting caught in the meat hooks of all the, all the different ways that we kind of, well, mixing metaphors, but like we keep kind of popping our heads out of the water of it for like a split second <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, just yeah. diving right back in. Yeah. And I think that's the problem, right? So mm -hmm. it's imagine, mm -hmm. imagine like the matrix, except uh, you know, Morpheus tells you that, you know, the world isn't real and that there's a thing called the matrix. And then he shows you what it's like. Okay. And then yeah. when you go back into the matrix, you forget every single time and you just start yeah, yeah, acting yeah. normal again. And yeah, you don't yeah, get yeah. those cool superpowers because the cool superpowers come from you understanding that the matrix is not real. Right? Okay. I, I love that you brought up this metaphor because uh -huh. I think I, I, I think I'm kind of learning how to articulate the, the issue that it might have. I don't know if I mm -hmm. have it, but I think I have it. So mm -hmm. I just recently watched all of the matrixes. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a great cult classic, but there's a problem with the matrix. Okay. And without getting too deep into the woods or the weeds, rather um, talk about mixing metaphors. Um, <laughs> the, pro <laughs> the problem with the matrix is that the matrix is a Gnostic film. So like, yeah, Gnosticism, you know, it has its good parts and its bad parts, but Gnosticism, the whole worldview of Gnosticism is like, there's like an evil God and then there's a higher good God. And then we have to like overcome the evil God. And so like the world of the matrix is obviously run by the architect, right? The evil God. And then we have, and Neo is the one and we have to bring it so that's one mystical tradition, right? Gnosticism is one particular mystical tradition that was, you know, sort of came out of this Neoplatonic era in the ancient world. But there's another mystical tradition or other mystical traditions that are more Taoist, I would say, and that are more Eastern. Not all of them. Some of them can be found in the Judeo-Christian world, but are more Eastern that basically sees as its goal, a unity of opposites, right? Um, or coming together of a balancing of opposites, if you will, as opposed to light destroying the darkness, right? A kind of balance between light and darkness. You can see this in, in you know, the Tao Te Ching and the yin yang symbol, and even in elements of Hasidic Judaism, you can see this. And so, there's part of me that anytime I come across a Gnostic sort of matrixy take on race or on other contemporary problems that our culture faces, I'm like, 
I don't know that I share that philosophical belief system fundamentally because I'm much more drawn to Taoism and I'm much more drawn to that kind of, you know, how can we bring a harmonious balance to, because the theory of enchantment is all about like, like from a historical perspective, we believe that racism in the West occurred when we as a civilization, because of our uh, love of scientific certainty and because of our love of knowledge and our, what then became a, a, an obsession with scientific certainty led to fear of the darkness because it led mm. to fear of the unknown, right? So we had this obsession with the known and then it led to fear of the unknown and we, we made the unknown synonymous with darkness, right? And so we, then we started to say, oh, the darkness is all bad, right? And then we took that darkness and then we projected it onto the darker, physically darker peoples of West Africa. And then we called their cultures inferior mm-hmm. and then we enslaved them. So there's this Gnostic, you know, thread that has, that, that arguably is the source of our problems in the first place. And so I'm hesitant to endorse what would seem like a Gnostic solution. Mm. I'll stop there. <laughs> okay. I, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. And I think my view is that the two pursuits aren't actually in conflict. Um, okay. Because everything that you just laid out is still yeah. something we need to do. And it's still something that's important. <laughs> yeah. The only thing we don't need to do and the only thing that, and the thing that I don't think is in any way required to accomplish the mission that you just laid out is accepting mm-hmm. this nonsense concept that we have been steeped in this entire mm-hmm. time. So we can just mm-hmm. reject that wholeheartedly because we recognize it as nonsense. So like, even though, you know, you can have this kind of matrix thing where you, you know, you can recognize the matrix and you can say that's not the real world and escaping it is a good thing. But once mm. you're in the real world, you still have to do all that other work. You know what I mean? That's kind of like, Mm. you still have to make sure the plumbing works in Zion. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? So to keep that metaphor going. So I feel like that's, that's where it is for me is Mm. that everything you're doing would actually be made easier if we just remove that thing. And again, it's part of that project is letting people understand or getting people to understand that none of the things that they actually value would Mm -hmm. be lost. Only the terrible things are, are the things that are being removed, right? Because it was, it was a terrible thing that was grafted onto all the beautiful things. I mean, I would have some questions. I, I don't necessarily disagree with the project that you've laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just have some questions as to how you would go about doing that. Um, especially... Yeah, that's the tough part. <laughs> <laughs> especially, like, you know... If you if you belong to a group of people who have this historical narrative, right, of experiencing slavery and then overcoming slavery and then experiencing a skin color based systemic uh, persecution and then overcoming persecution. It becomes very difficult uh, for a people who feels resilient because Mm -hmm. of that history to then say to them, to, to then take race out of it, right? Mm-hmm. It becomes very difficult to Yeah, I can, yeah, that's the problem. That. <laughs> yeah, they, because it's, it's, all, it's all like 
twisted together with all of those things that are yeah. valuable, the resilience and the history and the community. Yeah. But it's kind of like, you know, to go back to the racecraft, the witchcraft analogy, right? All those women who who stood up and fought mm-hmm. against, you know, the, the witch trials and all that sort of thing and, and yeah. the movement that that came about afterwards and all that stuff, all that is still real. All that is there. And at mm-hmm. no point did did witches actually become real. Yeah. <laughs> and at no point do we need to think witches are real in order for all that. You the know? problem is, Angel, that some women today do see the term do you see the term witch as a kind of, you know, feminist celebration, right? right? Because of that history. And then we're all yeah. the way back to square one. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's tough. I yeah, you're right. It's tough. Well, Chloe, it's been so great talking to you. You're like, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think we're going to, we're definitely not going to close that can of worms today. But but I do want to make sure to ask you the final question that we ask all our guests. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, you're going, you're the first, you're the first guest who is not a fair advisor who we are asking this question. Yes, that's correct. So the, the question is, our, you know, our whole focus here at FAIR, everything that we're trying to do is similar to what you're doing, which is presenting a pro-human alternative to mm-hmm. all the issues that we've discussed, you know, all mm-hmm. the stuff that we've talked about today. So I would love to hear what, what does pro-human mean to you? How do you conceptualize that? Mm-hmm. And what would you say are ways that everyday people can adopt a more pro-human approach to all the stuff that we discussed? I mean, the human being is inexhaustible, uh, to quote John Verveke. And what that means is that we always have the capacity to transcend ourselves. So if yesterday I was really, you know, crappy to someone who cut me off in traffic, I love to use the cut, cutting off in traffic analogy, but because um, <laughs> it's so pervasive. Um, no, someone cut me off in traffic and I was really crappy towards them. Like, say, I gave them the finger. And then I started to think about, you know, not doing that. <laughs> and I started to try to think about the kind of person that I want to be in the world. And then the next time someone cut me off in traffic, let's say I didn't give them the finger and I thought of, I thought of them as, oh, maybe they're, you know, rushing to the hospital. Maybe they're having an emergency or maybe they're not having an emergency. Maybe they're really excited about something and they're just, you know, if I had the graciousness to extend to them um, that kind of thinking, then I have transcended myself because yesterday I was one way and today I'm a completely different person in that regard. So the human being is inexhaustible and so to be pro-human in my mind is to always keep in mind, always, always keep in mind and always try to realize that fact about yourself and also about others. Um, and what, what advice would I give? Um, I would say to practice shadow boxing. So shadow boxing is hard, but it's, it's got great uh, results. <laughs> when you shadow box, you basically, you become attuned to what is triggering your ego. And um, you, you know your ego is triggered when you start to think of yourself as better than another person. And so what you do to change that is you shadow box. And so you identify a person who triggers that feeling in you. And then you identify the, 
the thing, the behavior that you don't like about that person, you identify how that shows up within yourself. And you practice that all the time. Um, and what that does is it, it enables you to stop, to stop this sort of like act of separating yourself from another person in a kind of us versus them mindset. Um, and it also enables you to practice compassion for other people, even while simultaneously identifying their behavior is, you know, wrong or problematic. Um, and it keeps you, it keeps you grounded. It keeps you humble, you know, and uh, maybe even a little joyful at times. So that would be my advice. It's beautiful. As, as expected, a beautiful response. <laughs> Thanks, Angel. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspective. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again, and see you next time.